I'm Tiana Jay, the founder of the Humanitarian Changemakers Network. And I'm Lachlan, here to ask some interesting questions. Welcome, Welcome to, to Changemaker, Changemaker Q&A. With the rise of fake news, divisive politics, and growing insecurity created by social and economic inequality, we are often left with a media landscape dominated by dismal perspectives of the world. Young people need to learn about examples of positive change. Identifying potential solutions to global challenges is key to our public dialogue. As a solutions media podcast, we dive deep into current affairs and events, answer any questions you have about social change, and share stories and insights from young people and organisations active in the social change space. But before we begin, we would like to acknowledge and thank Australia's traditional owners and custodians for their continued care and protection of our land and waterways. We pay our respect to all elders past, present and emerging, and look to you for guidance as leaders of social justice. Now on to today's episode. Welcome back to Changemaker Q&A, everybody. I apologize in advance if my voice is a little bit annoying, if it sounds a little bit congested and nasally because I am getting over a really nasty head cold. I've been stuck in bed for the last four days and that kind of just threw me out of whack and I really wanted to get this episode up um, and ready um, before my week really kicks off because I have a big week ahead, um, including my 25th birthday. So I didn't want to miss out on birthday celebrations because I had too much work to catch up on. So apologies <laughs> for my voice. Uh, but this episode is one that I'm very excited to be recording. So just last week, tens of thousands of people kind of took to the streets across Australia to March for Justice. It's a movement that follows several cases where women just like Brittany Higgins have come forward speaking out publicly about their experiences with sexual harassment, assault and rape, uh, particularly by politicians and people in positions of power within these workplaces. And there have been some really serious accusations made against people as powerful as our very own Attorney General. Now, women are not only demanding that these people be held accountable for their actions um, and their crimes, but uh, we're also calling for collective and systemic change to all of the structures that are actually in place that allow this type of thing to persist and continue. So I attended the March for Justice in Brisbane, and in this episode of Change Maker Q&A, I really just want to do a bit of a deep dive into what it actually is that women want and what women's rights across Australia beyond the March for Justice movement really looks like and how we can kind of go about addressing these systemic issues. So to kick off this episode, I actually want to start by just sharing some of the key quotes um, that I got from Brittany Higgins' speech that she gave at the Canberra March for Justice. I think in her telling her own story of her lived experience, it really kind of encapsulates the scope and the depth of this issue um, of gender and sexual violence from the perspective of someone who's um, not only gone through it, but whose story has really sparked this significant public discourse. And unfortunately, in some cases, it's also sparked quite a bit of controversy. We are all here today, not because we want to be here, but because we have to be here. We fundamentally recognise the system is broken, the glass ceiling is still in place, and there are significant failings in the power structures within our institutions. We are here because it's unfathomable that we are still having to fight this same stale, tired fight. As it's been said before, time can be used constructively or destructively. Human progress rarely rolls on inevitability. 
It is through dedication and effort that we move forward. When we fall asleep at the wheel, what tends to happen is that time becomes an ally of those who seek stagnation. We regress. It is the custodians of the status quo keeping the existing order alive. To see real progress, we must seek it out. There is a confronting sense of banality about sexual violence in our community. I was raped inside Parliament House by a colleague and for so long it felt like the people around me only cared because of where it happened and what it might mean for them. It was so confusing because these people were my idols. I had dedicated my life to them. They were my social network, my colleagues and my family. And suddenly they treated me differently. I wasn't a person who'd just gone through a life changing traumatic event. I was a political problem. My story was on the front page for the sole reason that it is a painful reminder to women that if it can happen in Parliament House, it can truly happen anywhere. Like many of you, I've watched this all play out in the media. I watched it happen via a laptop from a spare bedroom in my dad's apartment on the Gold Coast. <laughs> I watched as the Prime Minister of Australia publicly apologised to me through the media while privately his team actively discredited and undermined my loved ones. I tuned into Question Time to see my former bosses, people that I had dedicated my life to, deny and downplay my lived experience. I read the news updates every day at 5am because I was waking up to new information about my own sexual assault through the media. Details that were never disclosed to me by my employers. Information that would have helped me answer questions that have haunted me for years. I watched as people hid behind throwaway phrases like due process and presumption of innocence while failing to acknowledge how the justice system is notoriously stacked against victims of sexual crimes. I read the advice from Defence Chief Angus Campbell, who advised women on how not to fall prey to those who have the proclivity to harm others. If they aren't committed to addressing these issues in their own offices, what confidence can the women of Australia have that they will be proactive in addressing this issue in the broader community? We've all learned over the past few weeks just how common gendered violence is in this country. It's time our leaders on both sides of politics stop avoiding the subject and sidestepping accountability. It's time we actually address the problem. I decided to resign and share my story because it was the only thing I felt I could do to say that I didn't co-sign this behaviour. Now, I think what Brittany Higgins has said here really does um, capture how a lot of women across Australia feel when it comes to this issue. And the only way I can kind of describe it as a woman myself is that I think as a collective, we're just so sick of feeling trapped. You know, we're trapped in our own bodies from, you know, the complete and utter disregard for our own right to bodily autonomy when people harass us or inflict violence on us. And there's absolutely nothing we can really do about it in that moment. And then we're also trapped into kind of believing that it's better not to take action or not to seek justice afterwards, because a lot of the time the repercussions that come with speaking out can far outweigh any benefits. 
Um, and then we're also kind of trapped in this whole system that was literally designed to protect people in positions of power and those who perpetrate violence against us. And um, I guess the slogan of the March for Justice movement really sums it up. Um, enough is enough. You know, how many more women need to be killed by somebody close to them before people start taking this issue seriously? How many more women need to come forward about sexual assault before people are going to start believing them? How many more white women need to be at the centre of media attention around gendered violence and gender equality before we start listening to the LGBTQI plus community, women with disabilities or BIPOC women? How many more times do women need to start the discourse around these issues before men actually start speaking out and taking action too? How many more times do we need to take to the streets to demand change before our leaders actually start listening? And on that note, I think what I really want to highlight um, in this episode is the importance that the role of activism does play as a crucial tool in promoting change on this issue. Now, I'm sure I speak for pretty much everyone when I say that none of us want to be marching on the streets demanding justice and change. I can tell you now that there were a million of other things I would have rather uh, spent my Monday doing last week than marching through the streets of Brisbane in the rain, dealing with a topic that is so personal and triggering to me. And I'm sure a lot of um, other women out there can agree with that. But unfortunately, change doesn't just happen on its own. Activism is a necessary and very strategic action that we need to utilize um, that with enough people power behind it can actually catalyze change. So federal parliament was sitting last week and that's why the protest in Canberra um, served to confront the targets of this um, campaign, our parliamentarians. So with marches simultaneously happening across the country, it was also dominating local and national media, um, which was promoting public discourse on the issue, which then in turn makes it a lot harder for politicians to ignore. So at the Canberra March, there was a petition that had over 90,000 signatures that was passed on to parliamentarians. And something very remarkable about this action is that um, Prime Minister Scott Morrison actually agreed to meet with a few of the organisers of the March for Change in an official meeting rather than actually attending the rally himself. And the organisers declined his invitation to meet with him in his office. Um, the reason being was that too many of these meetings are happening behind closed doors and it's simply not good enough. And this is part of the problem. These discussions are happening in secret, both in Parliament and in the wider community and in workplaces. And there's absolutely no way of holding leaders and workplaces and people in power accountable for their actions when what they say um, and what they do do versus what they're actually going to do to support women when there's no proof there's no way the public can actually hold them accountable now our solutions media writer and co-host of changemaker q a lachlan has written a really great article that chronicled some of australia's biggest e-petitions and how successful they've actually been so i will definitely leave the link to lachlan's article in the show notes for this episode if you would like to um, read the full article but i really want to read this quote from his article the three petitions with the most notable real-world impact all supported exceptionally mature causes which had been gathering grassroots support for months or years. They were not the starting point or catalyst of a movement, but rather a culmination of years of sustained campaigning and activism. 
Conversely, these petitions did not signify the end of a movement. Campaigners followed triumphant petitions with persistent and regular public actions and dialogue with their local members. Politicians themselves were made aware of the issue. These petitions aimed to tackle well before they were tabled and were held accountable for progress made long after signing had concluded. So I think um, this little quote from Lachlan's article really summarises, I think, kind of where we are in terms of the movement and where we are in actually seeing um, tangible change happen on gendered violence and sexual um, violence here in Australia. Um, And I think perhaps um, someone who I thought really articulated it quite well was the renowned feminist author and activist uh, Clementine Ford on her Instagram the other day when she was doing a QA. and a So I might just share what she said um, on the issue. Will things actually change after the March for Justice? Um, Sorry to be a Debbie Downer, but no, I don't see how they could. I don't see how one march in a sea of marches will change anything. We'll have a government that is fundamentally built on misogynistic, racist, white supremacist values that ultimately does not want anyone involved in the partaking of it who is not primarily a white cis man and government that is willing to cover up rape and sexual assault not just in the current day but also historically and that has proven itself committed to the time-honored clause of standing by its man how could anything change and it's not just government and it's not just other structures of power it's also what's happening to individuals how many women would have marched on monday who then went home to households in which the domestic labor was unevenly distributed. Home to men who freely make sexist and misogynistic jokes at best, and who potentially are perpetrating violence against those women at home. I mean, this would have been rife. So again, how can anything change? The system is still weighted heavily against the victim survivors of domestic abuse, of rape and sexual assault. It's still heavily dominated by white cis men who get to not only dictate laws but enforce them. I think what we can learn from both Clementine Ford and what Lachlan discovered in his article was that like any social justice issue this is going to be a really long ongoing fight an exhausting fight but one that um, is necessary that we kind of continue and keep fighting if we really do want to bring about change. I'm someone who loves learning, and I'm always looking for opportunities to grow my knowledge and skills, and that's why I swear by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community where you can explore thousands of classes in design, photography, business, and so much more. Since joining Skillshare, I've taken classes in things like watercolor art, design thinking, art journaling, storytelling through video, art activism, podcasting, and I even use Skillshare to learn Spanish. If you're new to Skillshare, you can get started with a free trial to get unlimited access to the entire catalogue with a premium membership. Just head to humanitarianchangemakers.net forward slash Skillshare for a free trial. And if you're already a Skillshare member, make sure to take our Social Change 101 class. 
Now, one thing I have noticed throughout all of this is I think it's really shown us how powerful media can be as a tool for social change. Now, we know that the media plays um, a lot of really important roles within democratic societies like our own, and the media should act as an investigative watchdog, as a platform to hold our leaders accountable for their actions, and also as a source of information and education. And I think in many ways it has. And this isn't something that we see all that often, given that obviously we're going through a bit of a media and news crisis at the moment with the 24-hour news cycle and the way that news is kind of commodified and and produced as something that will um, be profitable for news outlets rather than something that will actually do these things and act as an investigative watchdog or a platform to hold leaders accountable or a source for information and education. Um, But I think that um, this is one example where, to a degree, the media really has done its job. And I think, of course, um, there are a lot of ways that it could do better. Um, It has definitely sparked a lot of discourse about gender-based violence and sexual violence, and people are becoming more aware. Um, And some media outlets are putting a lot of pressure on leaders to do better. Um, But of course, it could do better. I think there tends to be a lot of reporting on kind of what is happening rather than focusing on how it's happening. Um, And by how it's happening, I guess I really mean like the patterns and trends that we're seeing and what the underlying structures that are causing these patterns and trends are. Um, And then also how we can kind of address this and promote uh, positive change moving forward. So that's what I'm going to try and discuss um, for the rest of this episode. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, I think less than two weeks ago, um, it was International Women's Day. And the theme for International Women's Day was choose to challenge. And I think the rhetoric of this theme is something that we can all utilize moving forward. I think that we can all kind of choose to challenge sexism and misogyny and gender-based or sexual violence. Um, And like all forms of oppression, we really need to realize that sexism does take many forms. And I think once we're all aware of these forms, we'll hopefully be a little bit better equipped to actually challenge and address them. So there are, I guess, three kind of like forms of um, oppression um, and particularly sexism. So interpersonal sexism, um, interpersonal forms of oppression are basically those where it's most easy to speak out against it and take action because they tend to be the most tangible forms of oppression. So interpersonal sexism is essentially the things that men do to women. So it's the actual accounts of sexual abuse and harassment. It's the violence that they perpetrate um, towards women. It can even be things like the belittling or ignoring of women's voices, their thinking, their ideas, things like sexist jokes. Now, when we stay silent against these types of actions, what it really does is it gives permission and it reinforces uh, individual men to personally disrespect or mistreat women. Now, what this leads to is men as a collective kind of internalizing these negative messages about women, which then leads them to consider any kind of discriminatory or oppressive attitudes and beliefs towards women as normal or acceptable. So then we also have institutional sexism. So institutionalized sexism is basically when sexism is woven into our political, social or economic institutions. 
So when enough people believe, even if it's covertly, that one group is better than another group um, and that group has the right to kind of control over the other group, this gets embedded into the institutions of our society and it manifests through our laws, the legal systems, the way police practice, um, the education system and schools, things like hiring policies, public policies, housing development, media images, political power, um, all across society. And yes, while it may be true that many men didn't actually consent to the system being the way that it is, a lot of it stems from the way that business as usual has been done throughout history in patriarchal societies like our own. But by not speaking out and not taking action to change anything, they're giving their tacit consent and allowing it to continue to work in their favour. Finally, we have internalized sexism. Now, sometimes um, oppressed groups of people kind of internalize the ideology of inferiority that they see reflected in our social institutions, um, and they experience the kind of disrespect interpersonally from members of the dominant group. And they eventually become to internalize those negative messages about themselves. And if we've been told enough times that we're worthless, we're stupid, we're not as worthy as the other group um, and we've been treated that way all of our lives sometimes it's not surprising that some of us come to believe it so we all have a role to play in challenging all forms of sexism whether it be interpersonal sexism institutional sexism or internalized sexism Um, And to keep things solutions focused, I want to look at this issue in depth using our social change framework, because if we do want to see meaningful, sustainable change on gender based violence and sexual violence, which obviously we do, it's important that we have a comprehensive understanding of what social change will actually tangibly look like when it's realized. Now, I'm sure most of you listening will be familiar with our framework for social change. However, if you are not familiar with the framework, it will be linked in the episode show notes as always. Um, But our framework for social change basically helps us to differentiate between different types of social change based on two key factors. So that is whether it is um, informal change or formal change. Informal change being changes that are not super easy to quantify or measure. Uh, formal change being those which are quite tangible and easy to identify and measure. And then there's also individual and collective change, which is change that we see amongst individuals and collective communities and the people within society. And then there's systemic change, which is changes within the social structures and social institutions that make up our society. So those are the kind of differentiating factors. um, And we can visualize our framework for social change as a quadrant. Um, So informal individual and collective change. This is the type of change that we see when we see changes in people's knowledge of and commitment to women's issues, and it will ultimately influence social norms, um, which are a really important part of social change. So a good example of what social change um, would look like if it was informal individual collective change for the issue that we're talking about here, um, a great example would be none of this victim blaming mentality, this rhetoric um, that perhaps if the victims of certain crimes had dressed or acted or behaved in a different way, then things could have gone differently. Personally, I find this absolutely disgusting. (laughs) Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, Well, maybe if the store had better security measures, they could have prevented the break-in. Or, you know, well, perhaps if they weren't so drunk, they 
didn't clearly say no? How was the murderer supposed to know that they didn't want it? You know, that kind of shit sounds absurd, right? So that's the kind of changes that we're looking at creating if we're working to create informal, individual and collective change. If we want formal, individual and collective change, this is the type of change that is all about increasing and improving the resources resources being things like services, support, information, money, or organizing that allow change to happen and allow people to actually take control of their own circumstances. So we need to make the resources available to people um, far more accessible and more effective than what they are. And I think Brittany Higgins said it best in her speech at the Canberra rally when she said that um, a brochure is not adequate support. So we need to eliminate any barriers that exist so that women can actually access adequate support services to assist them after things like this happen, but better yet to prevent gender-based or sexual violence before it actually happens. Then we have formal systemic change. So formal systemic change is the type of change that we see when we have institutional changes in policy and legislation, things that will hopefully address the root causes of a lot of these issues. So this one is very relevant um, to current discussions and it's also very self-explanatory. We need better legislation and policies in workplaces um, and beyond that will protect the victims, not the perpetrators of gender and sexual violence. Um, So a great example is that there are 55 recommendations in the 2020 Respect at Work Sexual Harassment National Inquiry Report from the Australian Human Rights Commission. So If all 55 of these were immediately implemented in order to protect women's basic human rights, that would be a really great example of formal systemic change on this issue. Finally, we have informal systemic change. So informal systemic change is kind of the projects, initiatives or interventions that allow our social institutions, whether that be healthcare, education, justice institutions, to better serve their purpose and work to improve things for individuals and communities at large. So it needs to be easier for people to actually come forward and speak out about gender or sexual violence. So our healthcare system needs to provide better medical and mental health support. Our education systems need to start teaching people about these issues from a young age. And our justice system obviously needs a serious overhaul so that women can actually seek justice in the aftermath of gender or sexual based violence. So that's what a holistic realization of social change for this issue will look like. And we need to address changes at all four of these levels. We need to make sure that we're having informal and formal changes and changes at both the individual collective and the systemic level if we want sustainable, meaningful change to happen. Unfortunately, we aren't going to get there with just one day of national action like the March for Justice. The road to change is always long and it's always filled with ups and downs and twists and turns. And it's going to take a lot more time and effort to get there. But I think we are one step closer after the March for Justice. And now it's up to all of us as change makers to choose to challenge sexism and injustice, whether it's interpersonal sexism, institutional sexism, or internalized sexism. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Changemaker Q&A. If you have a question about changing the world that you'd like me to answer, just head to humanitarianchangemakers.net forward slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review so that we can get the word out and equip and empower as many young people as we can to change the world. 
The Humanitarian Changemakers Network is a solutions media and education platform, so feel free to head to our website for plenty more news and resources to help you make change happen.